we got in touch with a woman who was on Schindler's list. And it turned out that uh, she lived in Tarnów during the Second World War and uh, she worked for another company uh, in Tarnów before she went to work for Schindler. I saw the road as science and I thought I would love to paint that. So we both had that mutual connection. I learned that love, I think, is... I think it's whatever we want to see. Poland, uh, things that come to mind, not a whole lot, no. Probably not a whole lot. Uh, Polish sausages? No, I don't know anything about that country. Poland? Sausages. <laughs> Pierogies? Is that it? We hope it's not. That's what we're going to try to show you. all that jazz. I'm Małgorzata Bonikowska. And I'm Tomek Kniat. Welcome to the 54th episode of Polkast. So, I'm actually in Warsaw. In a few days, I am taking a Pendolino train, which is the super fast train to Gdynia, uh, to the Museum of Emigration, where there's going to be a beautiful gala, and I'll be receiving a journalistic uh, award called Maciej Pożyński Award for journalists uh, who deal with issues of Poland and Polish communities abroad. So um, this will be a fantastic award for Polcast, which I'm getting, but of course I'm sharing the honor with uh, Tomek Kniat. Of course I love Warsaw, so I could talk forever about it, and the next episode will be exclusively devoted to Poland. But now I just want to tell you about something very cute. Um, the 1st of June in Poland uh, has always been celebrated as the International Children's Day. So all kids get a lot of fun, and a lot of presents and lots of activities for children. But there's one beautiful thing that I discovered um, traveling on Warsaw streetcars, which are called, of course, trams. Every uh, stop is announced ahead of time twice. And normally it's just done by uh, an adult person. But for that uh, wonderful day of the 1st of June and the whole weekend, I don't know how long it's going to uh, last, but anyway, I recorded it on Sunday, the 3rd of June. So still the International Children's Day weekend. Uh, well, listen to that. Uh, every announcement is repeated by a kid. And it sounds so cute. This great idea was born out of a close intellectual, spiritual and artistic connection between two women who live on the opposite sides of the continent, one in California, the other one in Ontario, Canada, and who had never met in person until their project was ready to be shown to the world. Dorota Skowrońska-Krawczyk does research in biochemistry at the University of California at San Diego, and Eva Henry is a visual artist based in Mississauga, next door to Toronto. Their respective passions came together to create Visions, an innovative project which crosses the boundaries between science and art. 
It focuses on the eye, which Dorota approaches with the microscope, and Eva with the watercolor paintbrush. And the effect is stunning, highly appreciated and admired by both scientists and people with no relation to science. We reach Dorota in San Diego and Eva in Mississauga. Well, I know almost everything about each one of you, but what I want to know is how you guys met and where this collaboration started and how. Uh, we've met in 2004 or 2003 over uh, an internet forum uh, way before uh, social media like Facebook. It was a social forum for women over 30. It was Gazeta Wyborcza. That was an open forum that a uh, little later got closed. And it uh, it actually had a very, very good uh, number of very interesting interesting women uh, all over the world. We were all Polish. And we've known each other since then. Then we moved to Facebook when everything sort of evolved. However, we never saw each other in person until this project began. October of 2017, the first show of our project took place in San Diego at the UCSD, uh, University of California, San Diego, where Dorota is a researcher and has her lab. Okay, so now Dorota, you tell me your your take on that. You know, how did you come up with the idea of having a project, of doing something together? We met, um, as Eva said, over the internet, and um, it was very obvious for me that Eva is a very interesting person and, of course, an artist. And from time to time, I could see her um, images, and I felt. Well, it was just a connection. I'm not an artist, but I love beautiful pictures, especially under a microscope. And I think what happened is that one day I was on the conference, uh, one lady, and actually by chance it is a major donor of our institute, is Miss uh, Shiley. She actually talked about talking about science to different people, to general public, and how uh, art could be involved in this. A couple of months later, I talked to Eva, and I said, like, Eva, your art is so beautiful. I wish you could paint something for me. And then I think um, one of those other times, Eva has seen um, some of my pictures, microscopy pictures, and she said, wow, I'd love to paint that. And this is how it started. It was very uh, natural. I saw Dorota's science, and I thought I would love to paint it. <laughs> so we both had that mutual connection. I like to think that I have an eye for art. I don't have a talent, but I really appreciate uh, beautiful things around me. Well, mm-hmm. interesting that you should say an eye, right? Because this whole project <laughs> is the whole project is built around the eye. Why the eye? So for me, it started with my uh, PhD project. So I moved to University of Geneva from Warsaw and started my PhD project, which was about the eye development, and especially a specification of one cell subtype, which is still my um, interest, focus of interest. But um, with time, I just developed this appreciation for beauty of the system. It's not only extremely well organized, it also is um, extremely efficient well, and it provides us uh, with very important input. As people, uh, we have everything we scan through the eye, and vision is one of the major things that we rely on in our lives without even realizing how important it is. What about you, Eva? Why the eye? I'm a visual artist. 
so this is this is the the organ the medium the uh, your door to the world the window I would say right and this is the the means of a basic intake of the outside world into into your brain into your basic understanding of the world especially for a person as visual as I am and who works in this medium whose art wouldn't exist without the the sense of sight uh, this was especially fascinating and I also years ago worked in the lab and I worked on a microscope mm. in the hematology lab so it just spoke to me Dorota's work and my fascination with with science and with microscopy and with what's hidden to the eye we we show it on canvas on as artists what Dorota brings through her microscope that people have no idea it exists. Dorota, you could have just taken pictures, right? You could have photographed what you see through the microscope. How much is Eva, in your opinion, giving to this project in the sense that it is not just a rendition? Mm -hmm. Why did you decide to go that way rather than, for example, show beautiful photography? That's a really good question because I showed those uh, images to my friends, uh, colleagues, and it hit me that those images from the microscope are very complicated, which means me, other scientists, we are able to distill the main message, but it is not that clear for people if I try to tell it to my friends or my kids. Um, so it kind of bothered me. I was using a lot of words to translate the image that was pretty simple for me to other people. And then what happened is, I think with while discussing with Eva, she kind of distilled the message. I was explaining what is on this, on this image, and then while she was painting, the major message was coming out so simple. It makes it so much easier to tell the story with her images. Well, the other aspect is her images are so beautiful, mm -hmm. so colorful, and catching the eye. So it's basically, there's no question everybody stops by and asks what it is. Oh my God, can you explain? Do these colors exist in reality in our eye, or are they added by Eva? So there are two steps to it. So they don't exist in our eye. And uh, our retina uh, is transparent or black and white, if you will, because there is also pigmented epithelium, which is black. However, when I uh, take my microscopic images, I add some colors to it. Otherwise, I couldn't interpret those pictures. So when I show it to Eva, they have some colors, but it's never so vivid right. or so captivating or so specific, you know. When, when, she, when she translates it, it gets distilled to the point. So Eva, you add color. It's... I add color, I add my Eva touch. <laughs> but usually when I start working on, on an image, I don't show it to Dorota till much later because I'm always afraid, oh, she's going to intervene. Actually, she rarely does. She gives me a lot of freedom. It has to make sense to a point that we're not lying to the public, right? This mm -hmm. is the structure. Most Unless I'm going into, into kind of an abstract form where I do get some creative license. We do tell people this is not medical illustration. You know, you go for three years to medical school for to be to become a medical illustrator and I certainly don't have that training. Besides, this is not our point. 
We are telling a story. The, you're telling the story, but I want you to tell us the story of how it all developed. Now we know how it started. Now this project has taken off in a most fantastic way. You've been places. People have been absolutely stunned by what they've seen. So talk about that. So the first time we have shown our project was during the glaucoma meeting at Shiley Eye Institute, and uh, it was only four images. Those first ones, the audience was amazed. Those were patients of our institute. They were amazed, and we were amazed with their reaction. So then, after that, we decided, okay, so we'll, let's do one uh, big presentation, and it happened in January. So then, without big advertisement, we got over 100 people. The, the whole presentation was organized in a, in a, in a way uh, like we, we could get the most to our audience. So first we had the presentation of uh, science, but already intermingled with artistic view, artistic images. And then it was uh, one hour strolling around the images and discussing one-to-one -one with people in groups um, and that was actually one of the best um, experiences I had with this project, and I think we will repeat it ever. <laughs> and where was that? Where was we, that? It happened uh, in a building that my laboratory is um, uh, located. It's a Lishtag uh, Family Foundation Biomedical Research Building at the UCSD campus. UCSD, University of California, San Diego. It's a beautiful building, and it has a huge DNA structure, sculpture in it and the setting was just beautiful we had i think 15 or 16 large format watercolors on framed and on easel around the hall downstairs of this biomedical building and having the person with the microscope right in the middle the audience having been introduced to the subject by Dorota's lecture and then we both talk about the, the connection between science and art. We actually had the full uh, lecture hall and we on the large screen we had a multimedia presentation going connecting the actual microscopic image to my painting. This was our first event of this type where we actually hosted it at the end of it, she invited the audience into her lab, which just completed the, the, this amazing experience. And we had the response was really, really amazing. What next? So we have several things now um, planned. So first of all, we just had our um, big uh, presentation uh, during the ophthalmology meeting in Honolulu. It's one of the biggest ophthalmology meetings, actually it's the biggest one, uh, gathering around 10,000 to 15,000 researchers from ophthalmology. And again, we had an amazing response. This time it was really interesting because it's mostly scientists. We understood what we are doing. We are actually doing science communication, uh, which is just our passion, right? So we didn't think about it as a, as a final um, science communication as a subject, but what this is what we do. Everybody was extremely fascinated by this way, and they, um, they applauded us, so we already got invited to a couple new places. The next one, big one, is um, again in San Diego, this is totally by accident, is um, 
one of the foundations, Foundation Fighting Blindness, has a conference organized specifically for patients and their families to understand biology of the eye diseases. Uh, we will have our own uh, space to present a project, to talk about it, uh, and meet with patients and uh, their families. This is exactly the audience we want to reach. We want to tell them, we want to explain, and we want to hear their opinion. So there's a lot more traveling and a lot more shows and a lot more discussions, and this can bring you to other organs or what? I think one of the major things we learned um, talking to, to general audience or lay public, if you will, we um, learned that there is a need for uh, for this kind of activity. So we don't mind traveling and going and talking about it. But one of the things we want to do, which is a little bit different, we want to write a book slash, I would say, call it album. So it will be a um, explanation of retina, retina biology, and a couple of diseases. Uh, nice to read. And of course, uh, with Eva's images. So that's our next big project, because we have been asked by many people if there is a book with those paintings. Plus, of course, uh, those um, presentations. And definitely we will have second annual meeting here in San Diego, probably January next year. Eva, are you working on any new images or is this like <laughs> constantly, a... Constantly. constantly. Actually, I'm painting constantly now. We say with Dorota that, um, actually we repeated after someone, that if you love what you do, we'll ne you will never work a day in your life. We're very non very busy non working people because this is on top of our regular jobs which i don't know if you, if in my case you can call it a regular job when you're a freelancer but this is a passion and this takes over in my case everything dorota it takes a lot of her time from her research i would say this is making my research more valuable so I, I don't even consider taking my time from my research. It actually makes me think about my research in uh, in a way, you know, this is something I do um, for uh, people. You know, my research is connected to finding new therapies for the eye diseases. So this is part of my work. This is part of my research. How could I even say it takes away? I apologize. <laughs> this adds, this also enriches our lives immensely. This is something I would, I couldn't live without right now. You find that the scientific world, scientists, are also responding to this, right? And, and it resonates yes. with them. So art and science should be connected. We didn't invent it. It's a common uh, knowledge mm -hmm. that we need to present uh, our research to the general public. This is um, very often our science is federally funded. Um, uh, governments is uh, looking for projects which are really helping uh, humanity. And we know that we are obliged to do it, but we don't have a really good ways. And the, the problem is that when we try to talk about uh, our science with our language, it is very complicated. That's why we need to find other ways. That's why we have science communication classes. So I think adding the art to it is giving a huge uh, advantage because it gets people attention. We like beautiful things around us. So then we stop and we ask, oh, this is really nice what it is telling us. And I can then come in explaining science. Academics extremely appreciated it. They said, like, oh, this is so new, so creative, and so unusual, but such a good idea. 
And from, of course, I guess, from the artist's point of view, that's also a new avenue for you, Eva, right? Beauty is in the eye of the beholder. And working especially with this organ, being a visual artist and being able to see the response, it's, it's a whole brings you to a whole metaphysical level. Our project actually fits very well into the STEAM concept. It used to be, until not very long time ago, STEM education, which stands for science, technology, engineering, and math. And now it's being recognized how how huge the role of art is in this, how art allows to communicate uh, science and all those other concepts to students, to people in general. So we are inserting the A into the STEM education. The A for arts is in there, and we we feel like we fit right in there. But you also have one more extra thing, that you're both women. The woman scientist, the woman artist, and creating all this. And I think this could be a wonderful, wonderful way of drawing women to science as well. Yes, definitely. This is actually one of my other passions, is to show um, young students, women, that um, they can do their science with passion, with love, and it's really... um, it's really a wonderful way to live. <laughs> this art project is another way to do it. And I, on the other hand, you know how huge I am on collaboration on of women. And actually, Dorota, in her scientific world, she's very big on that too. Women collaborating, supporting each other, and working together, communicating. You know, I'm a radical feminist. I believe in empowerment of women through all means possible, art, science, working together, we work very well together. So, yes, I believe strongly in sharing passions. We have wonderful conversations over Skype. We're thousands of kilometers apart, yet we have this beautiful uh, communication and friendship going. So, yes, women working together. To learn more about this unique project and its authors, and to see the beautiful images, please visit our website mypodcast.com Many people undertake trips across Canada, this vast country, the second largest in the world. On Polcast, we featured a Polish-Canadian who cycled across Canada and two who traveled with a red couch to celebrate Canada's 150th birthday. Monika Grzelak, a photographer, came to Canada for just a year. That was seven years ago. And she met her present husband, fell in love, and stayed. She has just completed a solo road trip from Toronto to Vancouver Island in the West Coast to look for Canadian love stories. Love across Canada was the theme of her journey. Well, you have just come back from this incredible trip. First of all, it was a solo trip, so you actually traveled by yourself. And then also, what I really love is the topic that you've chosen. So talk about how this whole idea came about. Um, So I got this idea in July last year. I'm a wedding photographer, so I was going for another wedding during the wedding season, which in Canada happens between May and October. Which is, and it's a pretty short period of time with a lot of work packed. So I was feeling like a little bit 
tired and I felt like I don't want to be just a wedding photographer and shoot weddings during those five months. I want to do my personal project. So I got this idea and it's funny because I got this idea in the elevator when I was going down, uh, which just crossed my mind and it was like, and I got the title title of my trip right away, Love Across Canada. And I was like, yes, I'm going to drive across Canada and I will find on my way people who I'm going to photograph with an amazing Canadian uh, landscape. And I got this idea and usually I don't share what, like my ideas right away with people because I'm not sure if it's going to, if they're going to happen. So I'm really like cautious, but this time I felt like I need to do this. So when I got to the, to the wedding, uh, which I shot that day, I right away shared this idea with my uh, second photographer and she was like, wow, that's amazing. But when and how you want to do that. And then when I got back from this wedding, I was I started planning everything and I knew that it needs to happen pretty fast because if I'm going to wait, then, you know, like you're going to ask yourself and guess yourself why you want to do this. When you do something right away, it's just going to happen because you want to really do that. So do you think that the fact that you have been actually doing this wedding photography and you've seen so many people in love, mm -hmm. has that inspired you a bit or is it reading or is it something else? Is it your own story? What was the reason? There are a few reasons. Um, one of them was photography. So yes, because when you when you shoot weddings, everything is scheduled and everything goes really fast, and you see people in love. But really, as a photographer, like you need to capture the moment. So I really wanted to spend some time with couples. Um, and ask them questions about their relationship, ask them questions about Canada, how they feel in Canada, and what inspires them, them about the country. So the questions also were related a little bit to, to my situation, because I felt like um, I, need to, I want to be inspired by the country because I also applied for my Canadian citizenship. And I didn't want to feel like I just get a citizenship and that's it. I, I really wanted to think why, why I do this, why I'm going to become a Canadian um, citizen. So that was another reason. And also I wanted to um, just drive across, like across Canada and feel the vastness of the country and get tired uh, being on the road. Did you not feel in any way afraid well what if my car breaks down what if something happens mm. like how is that I, whole fear <laughs> thing because i'm sure you felt a bit apprehensive it's a huge undertaking yes um but i was pretty prepared so i knew that i'm gonna be on the road on my own and i need to be ready so of course i got additional insurance uh, caa i got also onstar so if something will happen if i'm gonna have an accident then uh, right away, my car will connect with the satellites and I, I will get help. I also took a first aid course because I knew that if something will happen and I will be a witness, then I want to know how to react and what to do. At, like, I, I took eight hours uh, course in Toronto before my trip. Now, how um, many kilometers did you do? Uh, 13,500. This is going both ways, of course. Both right? ways mm -hmm. uh, in five weeks. Okay, so you drove from Toronto. I drove west to Tofino, okay. from Vancouver Island, and then I drove back. But of course, I was also 
I didn't just drive straight. I was also going to different places along my way. And of course, the the main topic being this love and you wanted to connect with those couples. How did you find them? I started with Facebook. So I joined different local Facebook groups um, and I started with big cities like Vancouver, Calgary, Edmonton, uh, Victoria on Vancouver Island. And I posted my casting calls there. And then I found some couples in the major cities and I asked them if they know anyone because I was also looking couples, people in different like different ages, um, not only Canadians, but also people who just immigrated here and they are new to the country. Um, so I was trying to find different people along my way. Um, and I also sent an email with my casting call to my friends who live um, in Canada. And, and I also found some people through my blog. Um, so different sources. How many people volunteered? I photographed 18 couples and I think I got, I'm not even sure how many emails I got, but I would say about 80, a lot, a lot of emails. It was also hard because I had six, like about six weeks for my trip. So also our schedules needed to line up. Um, because, you know, like I, I just got to one place and I stayed, stayed there only for one or two days and the session needed to happen exactly on that day. So I, I thought about photogra photographing 15. So I photographed three more. So out of those 18, what is the age group we're talking about? What is the ethnic background of those people? Just give us an idea of who mm -hmm. these people were and where they were. People who I photographed were between I think 24 and my oldest couple was 86, seven. Uh -huh. um, and I photographed them in um, like different, like in different provinces. So mainly British Columbia and Alberta. So like, let's say Kelowna, Vancouver Island, Campbell River on Vancouver Island, um, Vancouver, uh, Squamish, uh, Calgary, and of course the Rockies um, uh -huh. close by. Um, I photographed one couple in Winnipeg, um, so different places. Okay. And uh, in terms of their background, so I photographed like one Polish couple and one Polish girl with Canadian Canadian guy. One couple, uh, like a girl was from is from Taiwan, and the guy is from Mexico. And people who were born in Canada or they immigrated to Canada at different stages of their lives. Um, so I really am happy that. I was able to find people um, from like different places, um, even around the world. And Canada also is like a new place to them. So um, it was great experience. And mm -hmm. when they were answering the questions, because I asked each couple uh, nine questions about their relationship and Canada, I always felt con more connected to the country uh, by their by their answers. What did you learn about love? <laughs> I learned that love, I think, is, I think it's whatever we want to see. It depends on how we see the world. World, I think the same way we're going to see love and people around us. If we are happy, then we're going to see more love. Um, if we are sad, then we're going to see, you know, like more like darker things around us. And what was great that uh, people, those people were at the diff like different stages of their relationships. Like some couples 
um, have children. Some couples, they just like, you know, even they got engaged, so they are preparing their wedding. So it was also great to see love and different stages of relationships and love too. So it's even hard to say, but I was inspired by people like when I was getting a met, like messages after our sessions, and there was one thing which was um, the same, which they were saying that, thank you for a great time. We had a chance to stop for a few seconds and just think mm-hmm. about our relationship. That was uh, one thing which was repetitive in their messages. And in terms of their relationship to Canada, what, was, what did you learn from those conversations? I learned that people don't travel in Canada, unfortunately, Mm -hmm. and they go and try to discover different countries. But when I was asking them questions, they didn't see enough of Canada. And I hope that maybe our conversation and the session and my trip um, inspire them to see more of Canada. Mm-hmm. And uh, what are you going to do with all this material? I mean, you've got both, <laughs> right? You've got all these amazing recordings and fantastic photos. Is there a yes. book somewhere in your mind? Yes, it is. And I even started um, to write a book. So there is a book in my mind about Canada and my project. Um, there's also I'm going to do an exhibition in Toronto from my trip in mm-hmm. November. Um, And, of course, uh, I'm going to post the sessions and uh, blog posts on my um, photography website. And also I'm going to try to put together blog posts uh, on my Polish blog about my trip and, um, like, you know, tips how to to travel in Canada, how much. Because I've traveled for five weeks and I know exactly how expensive it is to travel in Canada. So, and I also want to give people some some tips where where they can save money and right. um, travel smart. One couple that you love the most? Mm-hmm. Um, I, it was the oldest couple. I photographed them in Campbell River on Vancouver Island, and I found them through one couple who I photographed in Calgary, and I said to them, I don't have anyone on Vancouver Island, and this is how I found the couple. And... They are 87 and 83 years old, and they are together for 63 years. And it was amazing because just a few days before our session, they got back from three weeks vacation in Hawaii. They inspired me so much because they were full of energy. And they said when they got a message from their daughter about the session, they were like, yes, let's do this. It's going to be another adventure. So... I love their outlook because they treat life as an adventure and they are not afraid to try new things. And they were so open about the relationship, what was hard in their relationship. It was amazing. I left so inspired and so energized. Just a few words about your blog, because you, mm-hmm. you, you, you know, you haven't been here for a long time, but you seem to have an absolute love for Canada. You're just this wonderful person that decided that, you know, if you want to become a citizen, you need to know a little bit more than what the book tells you. That's fantastic. Yeah, kind of pre- pay- paying tribute to this country. But yeah. but you do this blog. The title is has a lot of numbers. <laughs> I know. Um, the title is 6757km.com. So it's... Um, 6,757 uh, kilometers, and um, the title is not the best uh, in terms of, you know, remembering it, uh, but it's the, dis- it's the distance between Toronto and my hometown in Poland. Which is? Which is Wałbrzych, uh, Lower Silesia. The blog was born 
six years ago. And first, um, the idea of having a blog was just to share my um, experiences with my friends and family. I didn't think about writing a blog for people who I don't know. But at some point, um, people who I don't know started to read my blog, and this is how the blog grew. Like, the blog changed um, over time, and, you know, like, first I was writing about how I feel in Canada, how it is to be uh, an immigrant, uh, how I feel in Toronto, and then I traveled more in Canada, so I started to, to write more about uh, my travels and right now now I don't write my blog um, regularly which I want to change because I miss writing um, but right now it's more about my experience in Canada like more about life in Canada uh, and also travel and the country in general not only Toronto and how I feel but more about the country and also what Canada means to me. That's why I did this trip and that's why I travel a lot of, a lot in Canada because I feel for me this was the only way to feel connected to the country and get to know the country. I don't want to just live in Canada and be here. I want to know why I'm here, you know? I want to have a reason. And what is the reason? I stayed in Canada because I met my husband so I think he's the reason um, but right now I really like Canada and living here I think winters are slowly killing me it's very hard to be here during the winter especially the last winter which was super cold and I think I still feel like I didn't discover the country as much as I would like to um, so I think the I think the urge um, like of discovering the country keeps me here. It's not like a destination. It's like a journey. Exactly. exactly. A journey of discovery. To learn more about Monica and love across Canada, please visit our website, mypodcast.com. This is another segment resulting from our collaboration with, with a group of students from Poland, history buffs who created a very interesting website, greatpoles.pl. We featured them in our episode 49. Welcome to the Great Pole segment of podcast. I am Barbara Cargo and today I will have the privilege of talking to Mateusz Giraudo about a famous Polish traveler, Kazimierz Nowak. Mateusz is a sophomore and is on his first year of IB program. He is also a part of the Great Poles team, where he is responsible for taking the initiative worldwide. As I said before, Kazimierz Nowak was a renowned Polish traveler who traveled from the north of Africa all the way to the south and back during the 1930s. But what was so extraordinary about this trip? And where exactly did he pass through? First of all, the endeavor itself was astonishing. Imagine a man who's in his 30s in the 20th century, who out of the blue decides to travel the length of Africa, 
back and forth on his own with hardly any money, the person that we are discussing actually did it. Kazimierz Novak was the man who completed a journey of 40,000 kilometers traveling alone on such means of transport as bike, horse, camel, boat, and even on foot. It was not an organized expedition with many people involved. It was only him challenging the wild and unknown Africa to provide for his family by gaining earnings from the articles and photos he sent to his wife in Poland. I bet none of us would ever come up with such a means of providing for our families, especially in those times. His journey began in 1931 in his hometown Poznań in Poland, when Kazimierz set off on his seven-year-old bike to Tripoli in today's Libya, from where he headed southwards to the Cape Agulla, the south end of African continent. The distance between Tripoli and the Cape Agullas is approximately 11,000 kilometers. Along the way, he passed through Egypt, Anglo-Egyptian Sudan, Belgian Congo, southern and northern Rhodesia, and many more countries. Let me remind you that it was the time of Europe's complete control of Africa. But what was most extraordinary about the journey is that Kazimierz Novak kept away from the places where Europeans were present and preferred to stay in the wild or with indigenous people in tribal villages. History has it that once he reached the south of the continent, Brits offered him a free return journey in the first class, but he refused and preferred to complete his journey alone. This extremely brave and confident man chose a different route back, set off uh, despite being affected by malaria with hardly any money left. Fortunately, he returned to his homeland in 1936 after accomplishing his biggest dream. What made him realize that Africa was his great passion? He was a journeyman. As I learned from the book describing his expedition, he was always a curious man who was attracted by the unknown, which the African continent offered. He felt tempted by the stories of Africa and the discoveries the European voyagers told. Moreover, he despised and criticized colonialism and wanted to judge the colonizers' action himself. I think that these factors made him so eager and courageous to take such an unusual journey. What about his family? Were they supportive of his big dreams? Didn't they feel abandoned or at least forgotten? Well, uh, we have to be aware that the journey was partly undertaken to provide for his family. It was his job and a way to make a living. So that was a part of the plan that Kazimierz and his family agreed on. But though he was so far away from his family, this did not influence uh, their relationship negatively. Quite the opposite. Throughout the journey, Kazimierz wrote 1,242 letters to his wife, Mary, which were all titled, My Dearest Love, Mary. They kept in touch, and although his absence lasted around five years, they happily reunited when he returned. It's a known fact that he hated colonialism, but didn't indigenous Africans think of him as one? The lone traveler visited dozens of tribal villages along the way. He met the local people living very primitive lives, such as pygmy people and Tuaregs. Surely, for the locals, the white man who moved on a strange two-wheel thing was a really uncommon and strange phenomenon. But Kazimierz was never met with any hostility or threats from inhabitants. In fact, the people he met motivated him to complete his journey and cheer him up when he missed his home and beloved family. It was the Europeans who brought him down. 
Instead of sleeping in cities full of white people, he preferred to keep away from civilization and enjoyed the companion of fascinating tribes with whom he felt good and at ease. Thank you. Thank you so much, Mateusz, for this interview. It was such a pleasure having you on podcast. As for the rest of you, stay tuned and don't forget to check out our website at greatpoles.pl. Bye! Marcin Zarud lives and works in Tarnów, Poland. He's an English-language teacher in Janusz Korczak High School there, but his definition of what teaching is all about is different from that of many other teachers. His mission is to show his students that true learning is not just about classrooms, textbooks, and exams. This is why his work has won him many honors. He was the winner of the Polish Teacher of the Year 2013 Award and the Teacher with Culture 2016 Award. He believes in spreading his ideas about teaching, so he's a member of the Super Belwszy, a Polish super teachers group, presents papers at conferences, contributes to a number of professional magazines, and is a co-author of a podcast about teaching. Ballroom Dancer... IT expert and trainer, sworn translator, and court interpreter. That's on top of it all. We reach Marcin in Tarnów, Poland. What I want to start with is what I guess is your biggest passion, which is teaching and teaching English. How did you get into this, first of all? How long have you been teaching? Oh, I've been teaching for about 22 years. And, well, I started because uh, after I finished uh, high school, a teacher's training college was the only um, higher school in Tarnów. I had to stay in Tarnów because I I was doing ballroom dancing at the moment and I was a, a competitor in dancing competitions and my club was based in Tarnów, so I decided I need to uh, stay here. I could become either a priest or to start um, attending the teacher's training college, so I chose that college. You're a teacher at high school, but you're not like a regular teacher because you were the winner of something that sounds wonderful, the Teacher of the Year Award. What, who gives that award and how do you qualify? The award is uh, given by the Polish Ministry of Education, or it used to, to be given by the Polish Ministry of Education and the Polish uh, weekly called Głos Nauczycielski. Głos Nauczycielski is a weekly um, newspaper for Polish teachers, and uh, it's a newspaper published by the Polish Teachers Union, but it concerns the various uh, topics related to education. And uh, last year, it was the first year where the Polish Ministry of Education stopped uh, participating in the competition and only the Polish weekly Głos Nauczycielski uh, still organizes the, the competition. How do you get, do you, somebody nominates you or you decide that you're the best? How does that work? Uh, you can either nominate yourself or you can be nominated by your students or by some NGOs. And in my case, it was an NGO. 
uh, called Cities on the Internet, and uh, I was nominated due to my volunteer work related to teaching uh, senior citizens how to use the Internet, and I did it with my students, and probably that's that's why I was nominated, one of the things that probably um, were taken into consideration. But your English teaching as well? Uh, yeah, yeah, the whole range of the activities which I was doing at the moment and also my uh, previous work, uh, the projects which I had done before. Uh, so it's a kind of uh, general background and achievement and experience uh, nomination. But that's not the only one, because three years later you're getting Teacher with Culture 2016 award. What is this one? Yeah, after I got the Polish Teacher of the Year award, I went, uh, I started doing lots of projects, and those were the international projects uh, with our partners from Israel. And one of the projects was related to uh, organizing an exhibition in the Tarnów Culture Center, and uh, it was a local prize uh, for our city. And I was uh, nominated and I won the award along with other five teachers. Uh, and it was the first year the, when the award was given. Wow. So you obviously must be doing something right. Now, I want to know what you're doing <laughs> right. <laughs> what is it about your teaching that, well, other people think is amazing and worth, um, you know, awarding great, fantastic prizes? And what is it in you? What do you think about your own teaching? Why do you think other people think you're special? Uh, hmm. Tough question. <laughs> That's a tough question. But I've been thinking about that. And I think that uh, I know many great teachers, uh, also teachers who have won the Polish Teacher of the Year awards for the last 16 years. And I think the only... And the, one of the uh, main denominators, common denominators among us, is that we do not stop at the classroom. In the classroom, we go beyond the classroom, we take our students beyond the classroom, outside of the classroom, and we are not... Um, limited by the classroom walls and uh, we are not limited by the subjects that we teach. We try to show our students uh, the world outside and uh, show uh, our students to the world. And I think this is this kind of uh, global thinking uh, that it's not enough to just teach English. You you need to teach students. You It's not enough to teach your subject. You need to teach students, teach people. I think this is the, the idea. Give me some examples of this going beyond the classroom. What, where have you taken your students? And I don't mean just physically, but I'm sure there's also a, a more metaphorical part of what yeah. you're saying, right? And that's yeah, what I mean. That's exactly what I'm interested in. So give me some examples of where you took them, but also what kind of ideas did you present to them that you think were new or you got the information feedback from them that this was new to them and special? For example, five years ago, uh, one of the Polish NGOs started a kind of project where they uh, were looking for volunteers who would teach uh, senior citizens how to use the internet. Very rudimentary basics, uh, just you know, using the 
uh, internet browser, sending emails and so on. And I, I joined, uh, I uh, went through the training to be a volunteer like this, but then I thought, well, why not invite my students to do exactly the same? So uh, then I went with a group of 15 students for a two-day training, and then for a year we've, we organized uh, sessions for senior citizens where we taught them how to use the internet. So this was one of the ideas. Some of those uh, lessons uh, were taking place in our school uh, and some of them were mm, organized in the local senior center. So this was one of the idea how I wanted them to get connected with the local community, uh, in this case, the community of senior citizens. Did you find that the connection was established, that people actually got into a little bit more than talking about the Internet? Uh, yeah, I think so. Um, at first, uh, my students were kind of shy. They just didn't know what to do. But uh, with time, they started creating bonds with uh, citizens, uh, with the people who participated in our classes. And uh, after... Uh, uh, after two years, I think, I heard that one of the students who helped me uh, carry out the, uh, those workshops, uh, he was offered a job by the uh, Third Age University ah. because he created some kind of you know, relationship with the people and they invited him to uh, teach them regular classes in uh, advanced computer uh, science. Right. So you're basically opening the doors for those young people to see things that they would not have seen or experienced otherwise. Which indeed brings me to the next question, because in your biography, I'm reading about how amazing your students have been, right? Your students' projects have yeah. won all kinds of awards, and not only in Poland, but also in international competitions. Uh, after the first project, um, I decided that it's a good direction to take, to take uh, my students somewhere beyond the classroom walls. In the meantime, we created a relationship with a school in Israel. Um, we decided to tap into the Jewish past of my city, of Tarnów, where before the Second World War, uh, almost half of the population was Jewish. And in 2013, almost nobody remembered that. So we decided that... Uh, because we are uh, Janusz Korczak High School, um, we started this cooperation with Harel High School in year Jerusalem. And we thought that we could discover the Jewish past of our city. And uh, with time, we decided to expand the project. First, it started just as regular visits of the Israeli students to Tarnów. They visited Tarnów uh, yearly just for a few hours and they met our students and they went sightseeing around Tarnów together. But then we decided it's not enough time for young people to form relationships. So we started Facebook groups for them where they could communicate and 
form some kind of relationships. And then we decided that um, it would be ideal for the Israeli students to come to Tarnu for three days. And then during the three days, we could organize lots of different workshops related to the Jewish culture, but also to the Polish culture. And we wanted to show them uh, that uh, Tarnów had the, its Jewish past, but it's also rich with the culture of uh, the Polish nation. And they were amazed. And uh, after the three days, uh, or during the three days, we also took pictures of some places in Tarnów. And those were carefully selected places because we wanted uh, to superimpose uh, old pictures taken before the Second World War and during the Second World War. Uh, and we found those pictures in the local regional museum. We found them uh, in Yad Vashem, in the Washington Holocaust uh, mu uh, Museum. And uh, we took pictures of students walking down the same streets, and then we superimposed the images. Mm. And and we decided to to make an exhibition out of it. But then it turned out that it's not enough just to create <laughs> the images, but we wanted More. to you know find people, survivors yeah. who remember those times. And we got in contact with Ron Unger an 87-year-old survivor who now lives in New York, and he recorded some video memories of the places which were presented in the pictures. And then we contacted, uh, through a Facebook group called Jewish Tarn, we contacted some other survivors who recorded their video memories. And we accompanied those images with the memories and we also used QR codes to be to to give people opportunity to view the videos as they watch the exhibition. Margot Schlesinger, we got in touch with a woman who was on Schindler's list and it turned out that uh, she lived in Tarnów during the Second World War and uh, she worked for another company uh, in Tarnów before she went to, to work for Schindler and it also saved her life. So we, in the meantime, working on one project called Permeation, we went on to the, to the next project because we discovered a guy called Julius Madrich whom nobody in Tarnów uh, knew. And it turned out that uh, this guy saved about 4,000 Jews in Tarnów and in Krakow. So it's more than Schindler. Do you get support from your school? Our school is special because it's Janusz Korczak High School and the spirit of Janusz Korczak is very strong with our school. So I've never experienced any problems related to my projects. Whenever we want to, to do something, uh, I think uh, I have earned some trust of my principal. And now when uh, she hears about yet another project, she knows that she can trust me and I will not do anything stupid. And in fact, uh, she uh, got involved in uh, some of the projects because we went to Israel uh, two years ago with my students to organize the premiere, the opening night of our exhibition in Israel. She was one of us to go to uh, to Israel and she accompanied the students everywhere. Our school is quite open to new trends, to new ideas. My last question is about the podcast you're involved in. Tell me about this podcast. 
Yeah, this podcast, it's called Edugatki. Uh, it's about education, about Polish teachers. We invite the best Polish teachers and we ask them about uh, their ideas. We ask them about uh, how they achieved what they achieved, how they reached this point in their career. We want to provide inspiration uh, to other teachers who are listening to us. Uh, my partner uh, in this podcast is Jacek uh, Staniszewski from Warsaw. Uh, he's a principal of a school called Academia Dobrej Edukacji in Warsaw. Yeah, Academy okay. of Good Ed- Education. So he as a principal and me as a frontman teacher uh, or just ordinary teacher, uh, we talk to different teachers and we promised never to touch upon any political issues. We just mm-hmm. stick to our business. And uh, from time to time, we invite uh, guests from other fields, like we had uh, this interview with a famous Polish actor, Maciej Sztur, or with a famous YouTuber, Rock. And we talk to them also about educational issues. And we've got lots of guests because I'm a teacher of a very special Facebook group called the Super Teachers of Poland. And it's 150 educators from different fields, different schools. Like there are guys from uh, primary schools, from high schools, from universities, professors and ordinary teachers who teach in uh, preschool. We meet regularly on the internet. We have discussions on our Facebook group. Uh, so there's lots of things to talk about. To learn more about Marci Zarut and the projects that he and his students have created, please visit our website, mypolcast.com. And we want to share with you this wonderful piece of news. After we recorded and edited the interview with Marcin Zarut, Uh, we re- learned from him that he was awarded an incredible, beautiful, prestigious award. It's called the Preserving Memory Award and was founded in 1998 to honor non-Jewish Poles who preserve, promote, and care for Jewish heritage. This year, it's going to be the 21st edition of the award. The awards were established by the American lawyer Michael Trayson, who spends part of the year in Poland. Over the years, more than 200 people, mostly volunteers and mostly from small towns, have been honored for activities ranging from cleaning up Jewish cemeteries to running Jewish museums to carrying out school projects on Jewish history and memory. And this is exactly what Marcin did. We also hope that he and his students, who were um, authors of these incredible projects, will tell us more about the actual projects later for our podcast. Congratulations, Marcin. It's a great, great, great honor and highly deserved. Smacznego. We're here talking about our love for eating Polish. My name is Peter. And my name is Laura. And we wrote two heritage Polish cookbooks called Polish Classic Recipes and Polish Classic Desserts, where all the recipes have been handed down from previous generations. But updated for modern kitchens, so no more pinch of this or glass of that. Poles love fruit tarts. Polish fruit tarts are not like what we see in our commercial bakeries, with huge chunks of fruit, 
sitting in a yellow pastry custard and drenched in a shiny, sweet blaze. They're very pretty to look at, but they're often very sweet. The classic Polish berry tarts that we grew up with have fewer ingredients. They're simpler to make, less sweet, depending on the natural flavors of the fruit. This one is a favorite because it combines the flavors of berries and rhubarb for a wonderful contrast of sweet and tart. This tart is a go-to dessert of ours because it's so easy and flexible. Any berries will work, although we like it best when the berries are paired with the rhubarb for a more natural and fresher flavor profile. We have a strawberry farm near us, and it's super easy to run up the road and pick up a basket of just right fat red goodness. We should do that today, okay? Sure. For the cake batter, you'll need butter, sugar, flour, some baking powder, milk, four eggs separated, some vanilla extract, a pound of rhubarb cut into thin half-inch wide slices, and a pound of strawberries cut into half-inch pieces. Preheat the oven to 350 degrees Fahrenheit, butter and flour a 10-inch by 15-inch pan. Then following the recipe on our website, you'll combine all the ingredients in the right order and blend them thoroughly. I love using my old standing mixer, but a hand mixer will work just as well. In a separate bowl, beat the egg whites until stiff and then fold them into the dough, mixing lightly. Spread the dough evenly in the pan. Combine the strawberry and rhubarb pieces and lightly distribute the fruit mixture evenly on top of the batter. For the topping, you'll need softened butter, flour, and brown sugar. Mix the butter and the flour until it resembles coarse crumbs. Add the sugar and mix well. Sprinkle the crumb mixture over the top of the fruit. We'll bake that for 40 to 45 minutes or until a toothpick inserted in the center comes out clean. If your crumb topping starts to brown too quickly, place a piece of aluminum foil over the top of the cake. When your toothpick says it's done, take the pan out of the oven and let it cool. Then cut into squares, whatever size you like. I usually cut them in two or three inch squares. A scoop of vanilla ice cream on the side would be a no-brainer. By the way, if your fruit pieces are cut way too small, they could give off too much moisture and the middle of your tart will be wet. The fix is easy. Just bake the tart a little longer, but watch the crust that it doesn't get too dark. The full recipe for this Polish berry tart and information about our heritage cookbooks are on our website, www.polishclassiccooking.com. Just scroll down to the article posted on May 28, 2016. So we're recording this on the 15th of May, and where we are, I mean, my first, dun my first dandelions are opening. <laughs> okay, well, now where are you guys? We're in central Virginia. Right. About an hour and a half south of Washington, D.C. Exactly. And you, t you just said in your recording, why don't we just go and pick some, uh, a basket of strawberries? Are they fresh strawberries? Oh, so fresh that the field just opened. <gasps> they are red all the way through. There's no white in these strawberries. And boy, are they aromatic. My God. So, so, so you guys are like in the middle of the summer kind of thing. 
Well, the beginning of the summer. The, the strawberry, beginning of the summer. The strawberry fields will go for probably uh, maybe three more weeks, and then raspberries will be, you know, ready to go. Strawberry and, fields forever, right? Oh, absolutely. <laughs> yeah, we could sing that if you want. But I anyway, have to tell you, yeah. uh-huh. we, we, did a, uh, we did a Polish party for some American friends, and we did a strawberry soup out of one of our cookbooks. Right. And it's just strawberry soup blended with some buttermilk and, I guess, sour some cream. sugar and sour sure. cream. But it is so good. It's like a chocolate milkshake. And one of the ladies put some, took some Polish vodka and put it into the strawberry soup. Oh. She enjoyed that a lot. <laughs> <laughs> so that's that's like being creative about Polish cuisine. We never knew Absolutely. that, right, in Poland. Yeah. There you go. Well, well you anyway, can do vodka. Yeah. But you can do vodka in anything, right? That's right. <laughs> okay, great. We've started this episode with a short illustration from Poland. Margaret was there to accept the prestigious Marci Płażyński Journalistic Award for her work that includes our podcast. The ceremony took place at the Museum of Emigration in Gdynia, just one day before the release of this episode. Please join me in congratulating Margaret on her achievement. You've been listening to the 54th episode of podcast. Polkast is created, recorded and produced in Toronto by Małgorzata Bonikowska and Tomek Kniat. For a lot of additional information, multimedia and links, please visit our website, mypolcast.com. And while you are there, please share your comments, your reactions and suggest ideas. If you know of any interesting story that we should cover on our podcast, please let us know. And if you like what you heard, please share it with your friends. And don't forget to rate this episode on your favorite podcast app. From time to time we leave you with one of the famous English language songs performed in Polish. I don't think this ABBA hit needs any introduction. Thank you for listening to Polkast. Piękny sen, ten piękny
serce śpiewa, uśmiech zdobyć twarz. Ciemność się skończyła, światła nastał czas. Mogę być aniołem, to najlepsza rzecz na świecie. Thank you. 